Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Steve Knievel of Public Citizen, who assesses the Democrats' proposed Inflation Reduction Act that includes a provision to reduce the cost of prescription medication and the Republican Big Pharma effort now underway to defeat the bill. Maura Quint of Americans for Tax Fairness, who discusses the Senate Democrats' proposed reconciliation bill that includes a new 15% minimum tax on profitable corporations and closes the notorious carried interest tax loophole. And Jordan Bell, a tour guide in Roanoke, Virginia, who recounts the history of that city's once vibrant African-American community of Gainesborough that was wiped out by urban renewal projects in the 1950s and 60s. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Myanmar's military junta announced on July 25th that the regime had executed four pro-democracy activists, including a close ally of deposed president Aung San Suu Kyi. The executions, which came 18 months after the elected government was ousted by a military coup, has triggered condemnation from the U.S., Japan, the European Union, and Myanmar's Southeast Asian neighbors. Those executed included a prominent veteran of the 1988 student pro-democracy protests and a well-known hip-hop artist who was an Aung San Suu Kyi ally with the National League of Democracy. During secret trials, both were convicted of committing terrorist acts. Two others were convicted of killing a pro-junta informer. This was the first use of capital punishment in Myanmar in nearly 35 years and comes as the military junta is increasingly isolated. 117 people remain on death row in Myanmar. The Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, which tracks those who've died, been imprisoned, or detained by the military, says that nearly 15,000 people have been arrested since the coup, with more than 2,000 killed by military forces. The Israeli maker of the notorious Pegasus spyware NSO Group has spent several hundred thousand dollars lobbying in Washington, D.C. to be removed from a U.S. Commerce Department blacklist. Pegasus spyware was sold to law enforcement and intelligence agencies around the world and was installed on the mobile phones of journalists, activists, and dissidents, including the family of murdered Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. A ProPublica investigation, which received technical support from Amnesty International, concluded NSO's clients had used Amazon Web Services to deliver Pegasus malware to targeted phones. NSO is now pressuring Congress to remove them from the blacklist and tried to raise the matter during a recent meeting in Israel between President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid. For a brief time, the U.S. defense contractor, L3 Harris, tried to purchase NSO with U.S. government backing, but the deal fell apart. Thus far, NSO's expensive lobbying campaign has failed to pressure the Commerce Department into any dialogue about reforms needed to be removed from the blacklist. 
Only four days after a white supremacist murdered 10 African Americans in a Buffalo, New York supermarket on May 14th, the city went on with business as usual, conducting a short public hearing by the commission redrawing Buffalo City Council district maps. The new maps that used data from the 2020 census looked very much like earlier gerrymandered maps, despite the fact Buffalo had gained population for the first time since the 1950s. A few weeks later, a raucous debate broke out over new district map lines proposed by data geographer Russell Weaver, which preserved neighborhood integrity and ensured racial fairness while eliminating the gerrymandering. The group Our City Action Buffalo, a coalition of activists which supported Democratic Socialist mayoral candidate India Walton's campaign last year, has since called on the city council and Mayor Byron Brown to reject the original maps and to adopt the Weaver Plan. A local election lawyer told The Nation magazine the original gerrymandered council map as seen by political observers as incumbent protection for next year's common council election. After activists packed a public hearing in late June to oppose the earlier redistricting maps, the council delayed action. Mayor Brown has scheduled another hearing in early August to get more public input on the competing maps. If opponents lose, our city action has the option of challenging the redistricting plan in court. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Much of the nation was surprised to hear the news on July 27th that Senate Democrats had negotiated a deal with Joe Manchin, the conservative Democratic senator from West Virginia, who, along with Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, had wrecked President Biden's ambitious Build Back Better legislation last year. The new agreement, dubbed the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, announced by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, invest $369 billion into energy and climate change programs with the goal of reducing carbon emissions 40% by the year 2030. The proposed legislation would also empower Medicare for the first time to negotiate prices on a short list of prescription drugs, would cap out-of-pocket costs at $2,000 for those enrolled in Medicare drug plans, and would extend expiring subsidies for Affordable Care Act coverage for the next three years. Your reporter spoke with Steve Knievel, advocate with Public Citizens Access to Medicines program, who assesses the Democrats' proposed legislation to reduce the cost of prescription drugs, among the highest in the world, and the effort now underway by big pharmaceutical companies and the Republican allies to defeat the bill. The drug price sort of section of the bill, there's there's sort of three main pillars of it. One is we finally break that prohibition on Medicare drug price negotiation that I just mentioned. Um, two, we provide uh, a system that's designed to rein in price spikes that exceed inflation by requiring drug corporations to pay a rebate back to the government when their prices increase at a rate beyond the rate of general inflation. And three, redesigning 
the Medicare Part D benefit, which, um, you know, I can get wonky real quick here, but the essential characteristic is that it finally puts in place a hard $2,000 out-of-pocket limit for Medicare Part D beneficiaries, where, you know, some beneficiaries that take especially expensive medicines today can face out-of-pocket costs upwards of 10 or 15 grand. So that could be hugely meaningful for uh, for those kinds of beneficiaries. And then finally, you know, some of those savings are, are redirected towards enhancing the program as well, um, such as expanding eligibility for the Medicare Part D low-income subsidy, which I think we'll get into a, a little bit more in a little while here. Let's talk about the requirement in this legislation that Medicare should negotiate prices for a limited number of pharmaceutical drugs. And unfortunately, that list of drugs does not include insulin, which has skyrocketed in in price. And of course, people depend on that drug for their very lives all across the country, people with diabetes. Tell us a bit about the, the framing of that limited list of drugs and the potential to expand that list further down the line. What we have here is, you know, still only 100 drugs that are eligible, um, but instead of this ceiling of only allowing the secretary to negotiate up to 20 products in a given year, there's a requirement that the secretary is going to have to negotiate those drugs. So if we have an unfriendly administration that's beholden to pharma, you know, even that administration would be required to go through this process and and provide some service to lowering drug prices for seniors and people with disabilities. However, you know, one important piece was eliminated, and that's all the provisions relating to insulin coverage. You know, we are hopeful, and there's been sort of breaking news in the past, starting late last week, and it's, you know, I'm becoming increasingly optimistic that it's going to be the case. We're going to see at least some of the insulin provisions that were stripped out, restored. In addition to the Medicare negotiation insulin requirement, the the bill also provided special out-of-pocket protections for people that use insulin too. So if you're on Medicare or if you're on private insurance, this uh, legislation would would have um, provided a $35 out-of-pocket cost limit for, for insulin. Um, that was stripped out, but I'm hopeful that we're going to see that restored. You know, insulin is such a, I think it's such a flashpoint for a conversation about the high Uh price of pharmaceutical drugs in this country. Tell us a little bit about how does big pharma exert pressure on a body such as the U.S. Senate to really disregard the urgent need of people with diabetes to get insulin at an affordable price? Well, you know, Republicans have been fighting tooth and nail in a number of ways, as well as, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and some of its allies. You know, I've, I've seen some of the Senate Republican talking points that they're circulating to, you know, saying that, um, you know, negotiations that, you know, 90 plus percent of their constituents support that are in this legislation would be, you know, special government price controls that are going to kill innovation. And, you know, spoiler alert, they won't. They talk about protections against price spike uh, that exceed inflation as if they were some ghastly violation of liberty and argue that alternative proposals that would have, you know, several orders of of magnitude less impact um, would be superior to what's on the table now as short of the ideal as it is. Pharma, the drug corporations, 
industry lobbying association that I mentioned earlier. They they are literally buying advertisements worth more than ten million dollars now. TV, radio, print, digital, you have it. There are front groups for pharmaceutical corporations that are running ad spots in D.C. and West Virginia and elsewhere with, frankly, re- really dishonest rhetoric in, in them, too, about uh, overstating sort of estimated impacts on on how this is going to affect new drugs that come to market. Um, we should be with this legislation in place. There's still going to be many new products that are coming onto market and will arguably get more meaningful, better innovation in those products, too. The lobbying blitz that we're seeing now is, you know, nothing short of remarkable pharmaceutical and biological uh, corporations sending their CEOs to Capitol Hill to push back against this legislation. So you know, they're running a full court press. The defense industry and pharmaceutical corporations are, are sort of two sectors that are more dependent on U.S. government rules than others for their, for their profits. And, um, and that shows in, in the lobbying receipts from these corporations. That was Steve Knievel, advocate with Public Citizens Access to Medicines program. Learn more about the health care reforms included in the proposed Senate Inflation Reduction Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The breakthrough deal, negotiated in late July between Senate Democrats and West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, revive some of the provisions included in Joe Biden's earlier Build Back Better plan that Manchin and Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema killed last year. The slimmed-down legislation, called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, allocates $739 billion to address the climate crisis, energy production, and health care reform, while paying down the national debt. To fund the new programs, The agreement includes a 15% minimum tax on the nation's most profitable corporations that paid little or no federal taxes in recent years, while also increasing funding for the IRS to enable the agency to investigate wealthy tax cheats and corporations employing accounting tricks to avoid paying their fair share of taxes. Another provision closes the notorious carried interest tax loophole that benefits wealthy Wall Street hedge fund managers. Your reporter spoke with Maura Quint, Wealth Tax Campaign Director with Americans for Tax Fairness, who assesses the tax reform proposals in the Senate's Inflation Reduction Act and America's wealthy individuals and corporations that are working to defeat the bill. There are three key items of tax fairness that are included in this. And in fact, The tax items are how the rest of the bill is being paid for. This bill is completely paid for, so it is not deficit spending. Uh, In fact, it's going to be a a presumably a net zero bill. Um, And the three provisions are, I think most importantly, that there will be an imposed 15% minimum tax on America's biggest corporations, only the very biggest corporations. But these corporations like Amazon, FedEx, Netflix have often gone years paying little to nothing in federal income taxes. And so this is trying to rectify that and ensure that these large corporations aren't getting away with paying less than a teacher or a nurse has to pay. So that is one of the the key elements. Also, it's going to be closing a loophole that has allowed Wall Street money managers to pay lower taxes than the rest of us. Uh, It closes this notorious carried interest loophole. So that is something that, again, is just targeting 
very, very wealthy who've been able to get away with something because a loophole existed, and this will close that. And then the third provision is IRS funding. Right now, there are a lot of people, a lot of very wealthy people, who are getting away with not paying what they owe in taxes. And unfortunately, the IRS has not had the ability to really go after them because they are not properly funded. So giving IRS funding will simply allow them to then recoup the money that has been owed and that already is on the books and should have been paid. And now we have the opportunity to reclaim that. So those are the big tax elements here that we're seeing. How is it that we have major corporations in the United States that are making more than a billion dollars a year in profits that pay absolutely no federal tax. They pay zero taxes when the average person on a minimum wage family budget are are paying their fair share, but big companies with gargantuan budgets themselves are paying nothing. How, How do we have a situation like that that this provision addresses? It's frustrating, isn't it? It's one of those things that when you hear about it, it's it's really galling to know that that's been the case. But really, we are coming off of the tail end of, I want to say, about 40 years of tax policy that has operated under this completely defunct, disproven notion of trickle-down, which probably most people have heard trickle-down economics because, you know, it's, it's a popular-sounding phrase at least. So it's gone around. But it's this idea that if we allow these these wealthiest among us huge amounts of money, somehow that money is going to make its way to the rest of us. And so if we allow corporations, we keep giving them additional tax cuts over tax cuts over tax cuts. Somehow those tax cuts are going to eventually wind up in the pockets of the workers. But having had more than 40 years to see what happens, that is not what happens. What happens when we give these corporations massive tax cuts and we allow them to go uh, and create policy that allows them to pay nearly nothing or nothing uh, in taxes, they do not invest in their workers. It does not trickle down. In fact, what happens is they generally trade in massive stock buybacks, which helps the investors. They give their CEOs massive amounts of bonuses and golden parachutes, and they invest more in the upper echelon, the owners and the richest individuals who are investing in and owning these companies. And so we've we've seen this policy continue over and over, and it's snowballed to such a point that we now have corporations who are getting away with paying really nothing. Uh, and so it's it's long past time that we start to do something about it, and it's been really great to see uh, in this proposal that Democrats are really taking this on and are trying to rectify this pretty egregious tax problem. I wanted to uh, just highlight for a moment the provision in this bill to close the carried interest loophole that primarily benefits Wall Street's wealthy hedge fund managers. Uh, Tell us a bit about that. What we are likely to see is uh, strong opposition from this group of people that uh, are privileged to pay less of their income in terms of taxes than most other people. Yeah, I mean, we have a very skewed tax code right now uh, in our country where we tax income that is earned from paychecks at a certain rate, and we tax income that is made off of 
capital gains at a different rate. And so when you talk about Wall Street managers, they're in this nebulous place in between where they're making money off of capital gains. And um, and they have been allowed to get taxed at the lower capital gains rate when what they're doing is really something that counts in the paycheck world. And so this is just moving them into the proper tax classification really and closes up a loophole that, uh, that previously allowed them. And yes, you know, that is one of the difficulties that we've had is the wealthiest individuals have a lot of opportunity and a lot of ability to lobby in their favor. And the rest of us to this point haven't had a strong lobby necessarily that is out there trying to move things on our behalf. That was Maura Quint, Wealth Tax Campaign Director with Americans for Tax Fairness. Find more analysis and commentary on the Senate's proposed Inflation Reduction Act by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 2021, Americans marked the centennial of the destruction of Greenwood, the African-American community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known as Black Wall Street. Between 75 and 300 people were killed there, hundreds more were injured, and the homes of 5,000 residents and Black-owned businesses were destroyed. Another community known as Black Wall Street didn't suffer a race massacre, but it was destroyed just the same. Gainsborough, the black community of Roanoke, Virginia, was destroyed through the process of urban renewal, what some local residents called Negro removal. Through three major projects in the 1950s and 60s, homes in the neighborhood were taken by eminent domain, and the professionals who lived and practiced there, as well as the vibrant social life, were wiped out. A young African-American named Jordan Bell grew up in Roanoke, and now leads history tours of the formerly vibrant community of Gainsborough. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus participated in the Walk for Appalachia's Future in late May and early June and recorded Bell's tour narrative that recounted Roanoke's now hidden African-American history. This is a very important tour. Um, Their environmental issues here in Gainsborough has been for hundreds of years. There's... uh, racist resources, the way that resources are given here in the city of Roanoke to this area. And just this area is, as I like to say, an ignored area uh, by many people in leadership. And it's been like that for 60, 70 years. So this is, again, the Gainsborough area. And this used to be what many people reference to as the Black Wall Street. Over the past two years, you've probably seen in the news, Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood District. Well, this was Southwest Virginia's own Black Wall Street. It had over 200 businesses. It had a medical clinic. It had its own hospital. It had its own library. It had doctor's offices. It had taxi companies, movie theaters, hotels. It even had the first black life-saving crew in the country started right here in Roanoke, Virginia in 1941. Um, Gainsborough produced the first black ambassador of the co- in the country, civil rights attorney, doctors, lawyers, and everybody were next door neighbors. 
So you could have been a, you could have lived right next door to your doctor. You could have lived right next door to your teacher. But when urban renewal hit here in the 1950s, it completely wiped it away. And so many people classify it as urban renewal, but many people in this community back then called, called it Negro removal. Dr. Isaac D. Burrow was the leading African-American physician here in Roanoke. He passed away in 1914 after he was refused surgery by all the major white hospitals in here in the city of Roanoke. He developed gallstones and he was refused surgery. So he, his wife and a colleague got on a train and had to travel over 200 miles to Howard University Freedman's Hospital in Washington, DC. Unfortunately, he passed away from that surgery. But 10 years prior to that, and in 1915, after his death, his colleagues started Borough Memorial Hospital, which was the first black hospital in Southwest Virginia. So what happened was is they blocked off all traffic access. They blocked off all walking access. They blocked off you being able to drive from this neighborhood to that neighborhood without having to go all the way around or walk simply down the street to that area. Urban renewal projects, they were three here in Roanoke. This was the most urban renewal project city in the country. Usually you only have one major project. That's where you build an interstate or a civic center. Here in Roanoke, there were three. 1955, you had the Commonwealth Project. 1964, you had the Kimball Project. And in 1968, you had the Gainsborough Project. Over 1,000 homes were completely destroyed. Many of those homes set ablaze over 200 businesses, over 10 schools, and over 10 churches. On this street right here, there was an elementary school called Gainesboro Elementary School. There was also a church called Mount Zion, completely wiped away. There was an old YMCA directly across the street, wiped away. There were over 1,000 dead bodies dug up from a cemetery called Old Lick Cemetery and dumped in a mass grave. So this area was really completely destroyed by governmental policies and still continue to be ignored by governmental policies. Yes, ma'am. You mentioned the three urban renewal projects. What were they supposed to be for? They were supposed to rebuild homes. That was the promise to the community. So what they did was they put the word blighted on those properties. And once your property is considered blighted, the federal government the state government, they give what happened here, they gave the Roanoke Housing Authority millions and millions of dollars to, to proceed with these projects. And you're supposed to be given just compensation for your property. And what, what, was, what was supposed to happen was they were supposed to rebuild the homes or they told them that they were gonna rebuild the homes. That never happened. What they did was they built housing projects. And if you grew up in the Northeast section where the Burglar Center is, more than likely you were told to move into the Lincoln Terrace housing projects. So your homes were not rebuilt. In the 1950s, let's say a home was $15,000. If your home was worth $15,000, they might have given you $1,500. That was Jordan Bell, an African-American history tour guide in Roanoke, Virginia. Learn more about that city's once vibrant black community of Gainesboro by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPP in Athens, Georgia, WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, KCEI in Taos, New Mexico, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.